The extroverts love this time. The introverts hate this time. Just way not ahead. We've been going through the book of Nehemiah. We'll finish it to next Sunday, but we're in chapter, I'm going to begin in chapter 8 and then go to chapter 12. So open your Bible if you would. If you're not sure where Nehemiah is, it's in the Older Testament. It's just before you get to the Psalms. It's two or three books before Psalms. So if you would find Nehemiah chapter 8, it's amazing what people will tell you if you listen long enough. I was on this long airplane flight, a mission trip actually overseas, and I, I was sitting beside a guy who was in his mid-30s, found out he was a businessman, uh, loved sports, so we talked football. He showed me pictures of his wife, of his kids, of his home, told me about his business that was just booming, and then maybe a couple of hours into the flight in the conversation, he said this. He said, you know what I really want in life is just to be happy. If I'm honest, I just want to be happy. Is that wrong? It's the question he asked me. Is that wrong? And I'll bet he speaks for just about everyone here. We just want to be happy. It's a universal experience. It's a universal law, kind of like the law of, of uh, gravity is a, is a law of nature. Would you rather go to a birthday party or a funeral? Would you rather feel good or bad? Would you rather feel up or down? And if you said, I want to be bad, feel bad all the time, I've got a therapist I want to refer you to, and I think it might help you. But we have this urge just to be happy. In fact, it motivates just about everything that we do. People choose their friends often on this, with this question in mind. Is this a happy person? Will this be a person I'll enjoy being with? Some people choose their spouses like this. Is this basically a happy person? Will this person... Help, help me be happy. People evaluate their jobs, sometimes asking the question, do, do I enjoy what I am doing? And people will evaluate church. Some people will choose churches as one of the criterion. Is this a church with people who, have, who are friendly? And, and, and there's vitality there, and, and there's joyful. It's just a universal experience. Blaise Pascal, who was a mathematician back in the 1600s, said this, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it, it's the same desire in both attended with different views. Happiness is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. I think he's right. I think he's right. Here's the question. Why? Why do we have this, all of us have this desire to be happy? Where does that come from? Well, the Bible says it comes from the fact that you and I are made in the image of a God who is himself happy. Three times in the New Testament, God is called the blessed God, and that word blessed means happy. God is happy being God. In fact, he's the most happy being in all the universe. He could not be more happy with the fact that, that he is God. And Jesus was a happy man. Sometimes we see those pictures, those art, art displays, of, and he looks weak and sickly and sorrowful. I love the little picture that I have in our home of Jesus holding a little child, and his head is thrown back, and he's laughing. Now, was he a man of sorrows? 
Of course he was. But sorrow, like anger, was just a temporary response to this broken world. Little children do not sit in the laps of people who frown. People don't like to be around people who are angry or down all the time. So joy is the prominent mood of heaven, and it will be for all of eternity because joy is the Holy Trinity's basic mood. You were made in the image of God, which means God wired you for joy. And we're not talking about this flimsy, superficial kind of worked-up smile that we take. No, God wired you for deep, deep joy. It is not a sin to want to be happy. In fact, God encourages us to pursue joy. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, be joyful always. And I take that to mean don't suppress your desire to be happy. Don't deny it. Feed it. Intensify your desire to be happy. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. God could have said the prevailing mood of his people should be sadness. Solemn, being solemn. After all, sin's not a laughing matter. The cross is not a laughing matter. Heaven and hell are not laughing matters. And yet God says, I want my people to, to rejoice. And God is so serious about joy that three different times he told his people in the Old Testament, I want you to go up to Jerusalem and feast. There's only one fast day. That's the Day of Atonement. I want three different times these massive festivals where people would travel to Jerusalem just to celebrate. They would sing and they would dance and they would listen to God's word. If you were raised Presbyterian, you probably know the Westminster Shorter Catechism that begins with this. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. My son was in college when he met his wife at a college ministry, University of Arkansas. I've always regretted that. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Brought his future wife home to meet us. And uh, she was so sweet, and, and he told us that one of the classes, one of the things we've been doing together is we're taking this class in dance, modern dances. I said, really? Like what? And he told me the, the cha-cha and this and that. And so we moved the furniture in the living room off to the sides of the wall and put on some music, and they just danced. And we were laughing and giggling, and it was so much fun. And then Joy said, now it's your turn, Mom and Dad. Now, you need to understand, my wife, Ruthie, is a great dancer. She was a go-go dancer back in the, in the day. But <laughs> she said, Joey, Crystal, your dad lacks a theological quality necessary for dancing, grace. <laughs> Here's the point, friends. Joy is at the heart of God's plan for your life. He desires joy. And so we're going to learn some lessons about that in Nehemiah chapter 8 and chapter 12. Now, let me set the context. The walls of Jerusalem had been broken down for 160 years, and they are symbolic of the broken nounness. I don't know if that's a word. The people were broken. They were just, they were failed over and over. They were as broken as people could be. And God commissioned a man named Nehemiah to go and say, he is, God is not finished with you yet. Let's rebuild those walls 
And it was very difficult to do. They didn't know if they could do it. People opposed them. They were intimidated. They were threatened. Rubble was everywhere. It was a mess. It looked like a bombed out city. There was a financial crisis. There was a drought. People were discouraged. But in 52 days, they built this massive mile and a half long wall. Phenomenal achievement. And shortly after they finished the wall, two of those feasts those Jewish feasts were called for, the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Tabernacles. And so the Jewish leaders, religious leaders, the high priests, opened the Hebrew Bible. And they read God's word to the people, Nehemiah 8, 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and the scribe, the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. As they're listening to God's word, they're stunned because it was like a mirror was held up in front of them showing them how they had failed God, how they had broken his commandments. They knew they weren't perfect. Now they realize just how broken and sinful they were. It's a lot worse than they thought it was. They saw so much in them to regret. Their sins had offended God. Their sins had added anguish to Jesus on the cross. They had failed God in the past, and for all they knew, they would fail him in the future. And yet, God wanted that day to be a new beginning. God is always about new beginnings. And he wanted a new beginning with these people. So there's a time to mourn. There's a time to dance. We're told that when Jesus came, that he came to replace the spirit of heaviness with the joy of the oil of gladness. You know, it is possible, it is possible for sinful people to be too sad, but it is not possible for sinful people to be too happy in Jesus when they're forgiven and free. So verse 10, he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, which is the biblical justification for Twinkies and ice cream here, and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy makes you strong. Joy is strength. Strength for what? To get going in the right direction. The energy that we need to live for Christ is in joy. The Bible says this over and over. A cheerful heart is good medicine. That's Proverbs 17, 22. We know that's true scientifically. Cheerfulness releases endorphins, which are the body's natural painkillers. It increases our, our body's ability to produce T cells, which identify and destroy disease cells. It fosters the body's ability to produce neurotransmitters, which increases our energy level, activates the immune system. All of that comes from cheerfulness. The joy of the Lord strengthens me and you to resist sin. Nobody sins out of duty. We all sin because sin promises we'll be happier or we'll be protected. And sin is only defeated by the promise of greater happiness. That comes from the Lord himself. The power of sin is broken by God's promise of greater happiness. Joy strengthens my marriage. A woman was once asked, do you wake up grumpy in the morning? She said, no, I let him sleep. <laughs> I'm a better husband when I'm happy. 
Joy is contagious. People want to hang around people who are basically joyful. And the world does not help us with this, right? I mean, you get up in the morning and you're going to be cheerful and five minutes into seeing a website or the news and it's all gone. So we have to remind each other. We have to rem- which is what they happened, what happened here, verse 11. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and make great rejoicing because they had understood the word that was declared to them. So they had a Bible conference. That's chapter 8. Chapter 9, they sought God's favor. Chapter 10, they renewed their covenant with God. And now it is time to dedicate that wall and to celebrate. Go to chapter 12. People, are, people have gathered together to dedicate the wall. The city's coming to life again. Businesses are starting. People are in new homes. They've got this renewed sense of, of vision. And they come together as God's people. Their hearts are full to dedicate that wall and to throw a party. There's much to learn here. Look at chapter 12, verse 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, with singing, with harps, uh, cymbals, harps, and lyres. In this chapter, singing is mentioned eight times, thanksgiving six times, rejoice or rejoicing seven times, and musical instruments three times. Friends, the distinctive mark of God's people has always been singing. Of all the world religions, we are just about the only one that sings. Now, other religions that they chant, repetitive chanting, or the clergy sing, but we sing. Why? Because we have the gospel. Because we know the one who loved us enough to give his life for us. Because we know grace is greater than all of our sin. The people of God have always been a singing people. We sing at good times. We sing at bad times. We sing to God. We sing to one another. We sing at funerals. I've been at gravesides where we've sung amazing grace and the tears are flowing. One day our songs will fill all of eternity. The book of Revelation has over 20 different songs in it. My mom had died of Alzheimer's. And she was at that point where she knew no one. She really couldn't speak. She just sat in a chair in this very sad place. And uh, Ruthie and I went to visit her. One of our kids was there. And we sat down. She was very unresponsive. So we started singing old hymns that she knew. Um, when the roll is called up yonder, the old rugged cross and a miraculous thing in my mind happened. She began to mouth the words. The truth of those songs went deeper than her mind. They went into her spirit, her soul. They just sang. And it says they, they gave Thanks. Let me tell you you something. Singing and thanking God not only reflect our joy, they intensify our joy. They create joy. A few years ago, I was just going really through a a very uh, sad time in my life. And I was getting counseling. 
And my counselor uh, one day in one session said, I want to give you an assignment. I want you to write down every day one thing you're thankful for, and I want you to do this for two weeks, and don't duplicate. Don't repeat. So just like most of you would do, I, I wrote down, I'm thankful for my wife. Next day, I'm thankful for my children. Named them all. Thanks for my grandchildren. Thanks for, by the end of two weeks, I'm thanking the, the Lord that the light comes on when I flip the switch. I mean, just little bitty things. Went back to see the counselor. He said, how you doing? I said, I can't explain it. My whole spirit's been lifted. Giving thanks has the ability not only to express our joy, but to intensify it. Some of you perhaps should do that. Verse 28. All the sons of the, the, sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Nadophathites. Nobody knows how these words are pronounced. And also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmavoth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Probably sin offerings, but they knew that joy is the result of feeling forgiven, being knowing that you are forgiven, you're cleansed. They wanted their hearts to be pure. So here's the dedication, here's the celebration, verse 31. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall, and I appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. And then there's a list of all those names I can't pronounce. And then verse 36, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God, and Ezra the scribe went before them. Verse 38, and the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall. Nehemiah says, everybody on the wall, everybody on the wall. They're putting ladders up, they're climbing upstairs. Hundreds of people are on these walls, this wall that is like 10 or 12 feet wide, and two huge choirs are formed. One goes south, one goes north. They're going to meet at the temple. All kinds of musical instruments. Spirit of celebration, it was like the bunny hop. Remember that? Like a conga line. What if we did something like this? What if we just went outside and formed two groups and we just went around this property singing and you pulled out that old saxophone you played in high school. You can't play it now, but you pulled it out. And you got guitars, and you got every kind of musical instrument, and we're singing. People would think we're crazy. Maybe we are. This is not hype. This is not worked up, whipped up emotion. They just had a chance to celebrate God's goodness. Verse 40. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood at the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priest, there's more names listed, the singers sang with uh, Jezriah, who is their leader, so their worship leader. And then the key verse of the entire chapter. We saw it before. Verse 43, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. Watch how many times joy or rejoice appears in this verse. For God made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. It's like going to a football game at Texas A&M, and you have to park about half a mile away, and you still hear from the stadium. You hear the noise. It's like going to Talladega, and miles away, you hear the roar of the speedway. Five times in one verse, joy or rejoice. So here's what I see here. The source of joy, 
the course of joy and the force of joy. The source of joy, God made, says God made them rejoice with great joy. Somebody said if you want to get warm, you have to stand next to the fire. If you want to get wet, you have to get into the water. You want joy, power, peace, eternal life, then you've got to get close to or get into the very thing that has them. Where do you find joy? Psalm 1611, in your presence is fullness of joy. And in your right hand, pleasures forevermore. John 15, 21, Jesus, on the night before he was crucified, I said, I've told you these things, that my joy would be in you, and your joy would be complete. Do you hear the invitation of Jesus? Come to me. Let me refill you. Let me give you hope. Let me create in you what you don't experience right now. And I wonder if there are some lessons about worship here. Think with me. If God is the most joyful person in the universe, and church services are where we respond to the presence of God, what should our church services be like? Psalm 100. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Shout for joy to the Lord. Psalm 47.1. Clap your hands, all you people. Shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Colossians 3.16. Singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. Friends, I have read every command in the Bible about worship. God does not establish a musical style as a pattern for worship, but he does establish a pattern, and that is joy. There's not one verse that I can find in the Bible about coming to worship in a subdued manner with a coffee cup in your hand and a bored look on your face. David never said, I show my passion for God by acting laid back and cool. You say, well, that's just my personality. Clap your hands, all you type A personalities. I didn't say that. All you extroverts. No. Clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Well, I just don't feel like it. I understand that. Sometimes I come in and I don't feel like it. But God is worthy of us rejoicing in him. So ask him to warm your heart. Say, Lord, my heart is cold right now. I don't want it to be so. Warm my heart in this worship service. Our worship is not based on how we feel, but on what God has revealed. So stop enthroning your feelings and let the Word of God guide your worship. C.S. Lewis said it as well as anybody I know. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem the Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's the source of joy. The course of joy. It says the women and the children also rejoice. So it went from their hearts into their homes. This joy was picked up in, in their families. Women and children picked it up, overflowing in their times together. And the joy 
overflowed in generosity. What they had experienced in worship, they wanted to continue to experience. So look at verse 44. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, the tithes, to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priest and the Levites according to the fields of the town. For Judah rejoiced over the priest and the Levites who ministered. They wanted this to continue. They wanted the house of God to be funded so worship like this could continue. For long ago, verse 46, for long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. The Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. I think he'll take it from a grouch, but God loves a cheerful giver. And there is something about giving. I mean, we parents know that. Christmas time, who has greater joy at Christmas? The kids or the parents who've given it to the kids? I give because it makes me happy. So that's the source of joy, the Lord himself. The course of joy just overflows our life, and the force of joy. The joy of Jerusalem was heard far away, and that's what we want here, isn't it? We want the joy we have in Jesus to be heard far away, and I suspect that's why Fellowship Bible Church loves missions and loves missionaries, because missionaries bring good news of great joy for all the people. The deliverer has come. The death destroyer has come. The Satan conqueror has come. So Psalm 67, 4, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. It's what we want. Sometimes I wonder if more people would come to Christ if we who are Christians were more joyful. What a difference it would make if people could say, well, I don't know if I buy all their teaching, but that's the happiest group of people I've ever met. Because God knows without joy, life is drudgery. It's exhausting. Ministry is wearisome, which is why the Bible says, serve the Lord with gladness. I want to close with a question that's on some of our minds right now. How can I be joyful with all the pain in my life? All the suffering in the world. Is it right to be joyful in a world of hunger and violence and injustice? How can I be joyful when my life is in chaos? I mean, I read in the Bible in James 1, count it all joy when you meet various trials. Can't. One of the most surprising discoveries is that people who are closest to suffering often have the most powerful joy. It's a, it's a strange thing. It's one of the tests of true joy is the ability to exist in the midst of pain. Some of you have taken mission trips and you've gone to these places like in India and um, Latin America where, where people have nothing. They live in such deep poverty. And you come back thinking, that's the happy, I can't believe how happy they were. In the church, they had nothing. But they were so happy. A few years ago, Ruthie and I had an opportunity to travel to Calcutta, India and visit the Temple of Kali which is the, the god of Calcutta in Hindu religion. She's a fearsome picture with a tongue coming out and there's blood dripping everywhere. She's the god of death, goddess of, of, of death. And the, god, the temple of Kali is absolutely the filthiest place I've ever been in my life. No beggars everywhere. N nothing of 
no smile, just filthy, filthy. Right next door to the Temple of Kali is the house of the dying, staffed by the missionaries of charity, Mother Teresa's group. And we walked from the Temple of Kali right next door, and there were people on cots and pallets, and there were people, the soft music playing, it was clean. There were people rubbing their backs. There were smiles, soft laughter. And I thought to myself, if I lived here and I had to choose one or the other, it's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. People have been inspired by the example of Jesus there. One of the English officers in prison Flossenberg with Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Bonhoeffer always seemed to me to spread an atmosphere of happiness and joy over the least incident and profound gratitude for the mere fact that he was alive. That was said just before they hanged him. I think the Christian life can be summed up in the words of the Apostle Paul, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. And some of us are sorrowful right now. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, say it with me, it is well, it is well with my soul. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Joy is anchored in the facts of the gospel. Jesus came, died, buried, risen, coming again, my sins forgiven, my home in heaven, and he is with me now. How did Jesus get through six hours on the cross? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. It was hope. And what we have as Christians is hope. And it's hope that gives us joy. Things aren't going to change. It's not always going to be like this. I'll close with this. Come on, worship team, if you would, come on up, please. Smiles on your faces. <laughs> a man emailed me. A man had lost his wife. She passed away after a long sickness. He emailed me a few years ago. I kept it. He said this. I was in bed late one night, hurting, so lonely. I began to think of what she was feeling at that moment. What was it like to be in heaven? So he's visualizing. In my mind, I saw her in the arms of Jesus. He was holding her as one might a child, cradling her to him. Her face was radiant. And as Jesus held her, he began to gently swing her back and forth in his arms, back and forth, back and forth, until her head was thrown back in total abandonment and laughter. At first, I was startled by this image of my wife, but joy and relief flooded over me as I thought, she can laugh now. She had not laughed in six months, not even smiled in the last three months, but God had wiped away all of her tears, and now she can laugh again and again. I invite you to give your life to Jesus Christ. And turn from temporary happiness to the only one 
who can not only flood you with joy, but take you into an eternity of joy. I invite you, if you've not received Christ and you do not, you're not sure you know him, just to pray and say, Lord Jesus Christ, because you, I don't understand it all, but you gave your life for me, you rose from the dead, and I want to give my life to you, and I am turning from myself. I want you to be the leader of my life. Forgive my sins. And those of us who have been Christians for long, a long time, I invite you to once again to return to joy. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the power of your word that not only shows us our sin, but shows us the one who gave his life for our sin. And out of your great love, intend our joy for all of eternity. So help us to practice for eternity right now. Sorrowful, yet rejoicing. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together. By the way, if you prayed and you wanted Jesus to be your leader, your life, your Savior, you need to tell somebody. I hope you'll tell one of the folks who's here at the front, prayer team, right after the service. We'd love to just pray with you, rejoice with you in that. Let's sing together.